I'm Lisa Billu, and I went from housewife to co-founder of the billion-dollar company Quest Nutrition, and now president of Impact Theory. Our mission with this show is to empower you and all women to recognize you really can become the hero of your own life. Welcome to Women of Impact. Like tectonic plates colliding to cause an earthquake, these two women coming together is, in my opinion, absolutely groundbreaking. Now, individually, these women are already trailblazers in the female empowerment space. Amy Stanton went from the first ever Chief Marketing Officer for Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia to founder and CEO of Stanton & Company, a marketing and PR agency which primarily focuses on brands built by women. Her belief in the power of philosophy-driven brands has led her to represent an incredible lineup of exceptional female athletes and lifestyle experts in the health and wellness space, ranging from hockey players to snowboarders to yoga instructors. And on the off chance that this badass TEDx speaker has some free time, she of course doesn't Netflix and chill, but rather she suits up and runs, completing five, yes, five marathons. I'd also like to introduce to you the incomparable Catherine Connors. As head of content for Disney Interactive's Women and Family, Catherine's contribution grew its platform to become the number one digital media network, reaching an unfathomable amount of women and families worldwide. But despite the success, she struggled to reconcile between the femininity of princesses and the fierceness of girl power. So she parted ways and co-founded Maverick, a creative network that reminds girls and young women that they have the power. Not hanging up her cape there, though, she went on to write the smash hit Her Bad Mother, where she talked the no BS approach to navigating motherhood and womanhood. This raw account garnered the attention of the New York Times, the Washington Post, as well as CNN and ABC, just to name a few. Oh, and did I mention that in between all of this, she snorkeled in the Caribbean, walked on a catwalk, escaped a burning house, and found herself on a hijacked plane. Eat your heart out, Wonder Woman. Yes, it's no surprise that these two women coming together to write this book is like holding a match to a gas leak. It's explosive in ideas and burns all preconceived notions and stereotypes of femininity. So please, help me in welcoming the authors of The Feminine Revolution, 21 Ways to Ignite the Power of Your Femininity for a Brighter Life and Better World, Amy Stanton and Catherine Connors. Good morning, gals. Good, Good morning. morning. How are you doing? Great after that introduction. I am so blown away by the book, and I want to start with being emotional. So the reason why I want to start there is because that's the one thing that my entire life I've always been hide your emotions, Lisa. Don't cry in public. Don't use your emotions to um, persuade people. Don't use your emotions to win an argument. Like I was always very paranoid about that, especially with my husband. And I open your book and your first thing is be emotional. Talk to me about how that started and what you mean by that. Well, I think it's contextualized by this idea that femininity has been perceived as weak by society. And then we've now inflicted this upon ourselves and potentially been hiding some of our feminine qualities. So we take those feminine qualities, the first of which is emotionality, and show why they've been connected to the feminine, why they've been perceived as weak, and then actually show why, in fact, they're not only not weak, they're powers. There are superpowers. Can you take me through that then? Why do you think that I, they started being perceived as weak in the first place? They've always been. But the primary thing that's at the core of that is that if 
if a trait, if a value, if a characteristic, a behavior gets associated with women, mm -hmm. then just by that connection starts to have this effect of, well, if women do it, it's less than. Part of this has just been the breakdown of our societies over time, right? Women have mm -hmm. been in the private sphere, men have been in the public sphere. Male strength has been associated with very public activity, with leadership, with you know, dominance and ambition, whereas feminine characteristics have been associated with nurture and caregiving and, you know, tending to the hearth, mm -hmm. the household, for example, or child rearing that historically um, not, this is something that not just men do, but we have as a culture separated from um, powers. So there's something that's just in the word that we immediately jump to dominance, um, aggression, mm -hmm. um, masculine forms of leadership, the rogue male, the superhero. And because we associate power with just that particular picture, it's very hard to step back from it and say, well, there are other ways of being powerful, right? If you define power mm. as influence, if you define power as an ability to pursue your own fulfillment or others' fulfillment, to pursue a good, a common good or a personal good, then it starts to expand the mm. landscape. But we've historically, and this is across cultures and for millennia, looked at power in a very particular way, and it's a masculine one. Historically, leaders in the workplace were men. Mm -hmm. So as women, we felt that we needed to take on more masculine characteristics mm -hmm. in order to thrive in a man's world. And what we're saying is that may or may not be the case. We still believe that those masculine qualities, assertiveness, directness, confidence, that those are important and that we value those enormously. And even looking back to sort of the impetus for why we wrote this book, my personal inspiration when I started thinking about this, which was actually five years ago, was starting to question whether I had developed too many of these masculine traits mm. because I was so focused on my work life and my work, developing my work persona and wondering if those were serving me in the rest of my life, but also wondering if I was hiding some of the biggest, most important parts of myself. So my emotionality, my sensitivity, I'm a crier and starting to think, why am I hiding those things? And why am I not bringing my full self, my full authentic self, wherever I go? Mm. I love that. And when you said, um, is it serving me in the rest of my life? Like I live my life under that. So anything I do, I'm like, does it serve my goals? Does it serve what I'm working towards or not? And if it doesn't, then I sideline it. If it does, I do. And in business, as I was kind of um, working more and more, I was reading more books and everything you read, especially for women, is don't cry in the workplace, mm -hmm. don't get emotional, um, you will be dismissed if you do. And so it was like, I, I kind of, it seemed like that made sense. Like, okay, yeah, I actually get it. Men don't normally cry in business meetings. You don't want to be dismissed as being emotional. So I'm going to go in there and, you know, have like my, um, my guard up and make sure I don't get emotional, which is why I found this so fascinating. Cause I just thought this whole time I've been hiding my emotions cause I thought it served me, but could I have been tricking myself and actually it doesn't serve me. Mm. So, um, is there a fine line then in being emotional, whether it's like in public or in a workplace or just in general, where it's like, yes, you should be emotional, but up to a certain point, or is it like be yourself and just own it? I think the first, in the first instance, the question is how do we, how do you, how does one even think about emotionality? Mm. So the first thing we want to do like is that. unpack 
what being emotional even means mm -hmm. because we live in a culture, and, and this is a long-standing and cross-cultural thing, where emotionality is considered a weakness. That mm -hmm. it's, um, you know, that it's in conflict with rationality, with good judgment. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole idea of female hysteria. That we just we have this baggage around emotions that we that we're arguing we need to unpack. So step back and say, okay, are is it a problem to be emotional? Arguably, no. To your question, is there a limit to it? Sure, there's a balance. There needs to be a balance in everything. But it is to to, to challenge the idea that there's something problematic about emotionality mm. and that our emotions are a problem for us, whether it's in business, mm. politics, and relationships with a home, and push ourselves to say, can I benefit and can we as a culture and a community benefit by being more authentic in our emotions, being more willing to express and share mm. and connect around our emotions? Obviously being attentive to a context, right? And to being mindful, you know, of how things are going to be received. But starting from the point of why shouldn't I own my feelings? Mm -hmm. Why shouldn't I embrace them and think about them and bring them to the table and say, this bothers me, or this is pushing a button, you know, that I want to address or deal with and open up different kinds of conversation about what's going to be effective and what's not going to be effective mm -hmm. on, on the assumption that there is nothing wrong with emotions. And in fact, when you put emotions on the table along with reason and other qualities, then you've just got a much bigger toolbox to play with. And one of the things she mentioned, which we think is extremely important is authenticity. Mm -hmm. So we see this whole process of exploring our femininity and then bringing it forth as another way of getting at how do you live your most authentic life? Because if there are these parts of us that we've been hiding for whatever reason, either because we believed that they were weak, we believe that others would think they were weak, then we're not showing up as our full selves. And there's no question that there, there are societal factors that contribute to that and we need to be aware of them. So mm. to your point, it's not like we're suggesting that we go above and beyond to cry more frequently in the office. But the point is, if you do burst into tears, most likely it's not because you woke up that morning and thought, oh, I hope today I am sobbing to my boss <laughs> because right. that'll make a great day. But more likely because you had a moment where you did lose control and that's human. Mm -hmm. And instead of beating ourselves up over those human moments, which we do, especially as women, how do you instead use that as a way of connecting more deeply with the person that was across the table from you and saying, I'm getting emotional because I care, because I really am passionate about this work. And I tell a story in the book about, as you can tell, the crying piece is something I'm very passionate about. I tell a story about a couple of bosses that I had mm -hmm. while I was running the marketing and PR for New York's Olympic bid. And one was from the finance world and one was from the polit political landscape. And they were super direct, very assertive. They just tell it how it is. And so they were used to that kind of environment and probably used to working with more men, frankly. Mm -hmm. And being the crier that I am, I brought a whole new dimension to that environment. And I definitely burst into tears multiple times in our years working together, sometimes out of exhaustion, sometimes out of frustration. But what was interesting is instead of getting to a place where they were so uncomfortable that it changed the dynamic in our relationship, if anything, I actually think it brought us closer. 
I think about all the times growing up in the workplace where people have said, Amy, stop being so sensitive or, you know, you need to toughen up. It, it, it causes us to create this shell, mm-hmm. this toughness, which I'm just not sure in the end is, serves us. I mean, sure, we could all be a little tougher and, and understand how to be strong and powerful in the workplace, but here's a new way at it. Because if you look at your emotionality, just to use that specifically, that's why you're able to connect with people. That's why you understand people to the degree that you do. Mm-hmm. It's why people understand you, see who you really are. So how, why would we want to hide such an important part of ourselves? Yeah. And I love that, but what happens when you're in an environment where the person that you're crying to or in, in that same room thinks, like doesn't agree with you and absolutely thinks that your emotions is um, dampening the situation or clouding the situation? What do you do if someone's still just like, this crazy woman, like she just keeps crying? Like, what do you do in those situations? I, I think the most important thing in situations like that is... It is to be in your own power around your emotion, right? So the first thing mm. is to be able to get to a place where you're not ashamed of it, right? How or, do you where, get there then? Well, that's that's the personal work, right? And part of that is is the work of unpacking why do we think of crying in the terms mm. that we do or emotionality? Why do we think it's weak, right? When this is a mm. cornerstone of human connection and the human experience, why have we decided it's weak? Mm. So the objective isn't to be in the boardroom necessarily and to be able to say, I'm going to cry freely and you all are just going to deal <laughs> with it, right? But it's to get each of us to a place where we can, in a moment where we're emotional, mm. acknowledge the feelings, mm-hmm. right? Have the feelings, mm-hmm. not be ashamed of the feelings and use our judgment about how we're going to proceed. It might be, you know what? I'm going to excuse myself because I'm, I'm having an emotional reaction, you know, or I can feel myself mm-hmm. getting emotional. I don't want anyone to be uncomfortable. So I'm going to remove myself. It might be a, I'm emotional right now and, and deal with it. Yeah. Right. That this is, that this is the reaction that I'm having and it's a valid one depending on the context. But I think the very first step just needs to be for us to forgive ourselves Mm. in the, in the softest way, but then also to say, this is me being human, right? This is me being me and it's real. And what can I learn from it? And what are my emotions telling me? Um, why am I feeling pulled to express myself in this way? And how can I use it rather than immediately go, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> that it's a problem yeah. um, and, and try to bury it. Because to Amy's point, in the burying it, we're constructing all sorts of armor, you know, and pushing all these very natural, laudable human qualities down that frankly, I think we need way more of mm. in our society. We need to be more emotionally connected. We need to be more compassionate. By the way, I think once you come to terms with the fact that it's okay to cry, you're not going to cry mm-hmm. as much. That. Oh, that's interesting. Because of all this angst around the emotions that we're trying to hide, it's creating more problems, Mm -hmm. you know? And not to mention that we actually identify a number of health benefits to crying. So it's actually really good for you. Oh, tell me about the health benefits. It's physiologically powerful. It's it's a release. Mm, You know, it is... 
it's a valve, mm. right? So the reason human beings cry is because it is a release valve. Mm. You know, it's not it's not a superfluous biological impulse that we have. Yes. It's a release valve. So it does, you know, our emotional, emotional, mental, and physical well-being, you know, gets attached to our ability to actually experience our emotions and express our emotions and to have the physical outputs of our emotions. But I think Amy's point is really important, you know, that part of, and, and crying's the best example of this, where when we frame something negatively, we're more easily derailed by it, right? That's so because interesting. Because we frame it as bad. So it's like, I can't get emotional. If I get emotional, if I get emotional, then, you know, I'm going to be seen this way or that way. Mm. But then it's, you get emotional about being emotional, right? <laughs> you get more sensitive about crying because you're fearful about crying. Yeah. And it's in part because we've taken those characteristics and those behaviors and decided collectively for some reason, you know, that they're problematic. But I think that as long as we're stuck in this rut of this is bad, this is bad, this is bad, this is weak, we're, we're all, always going to be derailed by it. Mm. You guys are literally changing me in real time right now. <laughs> um, because as a joke, so I've been with my husband for 18 years and he used to joke all the time saying I was dead inside because I didn't cry. And it wasn't like out of like, don't see me cry, let me go hide. I just, I don't feel the impulse to cry, but it doesn't mean that I don't feel. And that mm. was the first moment that I realized, wow, I'm actually doing this to myself. Mm. I'm actually pushing down, like you were saying about the armor, right? Mm. I had built up armor and it made me go, how did I build up armor? Like, why on earth did I even do that in the first place? Mm. So I went back in my life and started pointing out things that had happened to me that had led me to here. So for instance, my parents got divorced when I was young. I remember walking into the room with my mum crying and she would wipe all her tears and pretend nothing was wrong. Mm -hmm. So from an early age, I learned that tears make other people sad mm. and I don't want to make other people sad. But I recognize now, especially with you guys here, it might not be serving me. So now I'm like, how do I unwire it? Because right, it's been like 25 years that I've, longer than that, that I've been wired to be like this. So it's, again, it's not me holding back. It legitimately is, I don't understand why people are crying right now because I don't feel the impulse to leak water from my eyeballs. <laughs> right. Not everybody's a crier. I mean, that, that's important too. If we can reframe what crying represents, mm. then we give ourselves permission mm -hmm. perhaps for it to emerge, right? You might not need rewiring, but maybe if you have a different relationship to what crying represents, then there'll be moments where they do start to come organically. But it's also okay if they don't. We're not saying that every woman or every female identifying human being mm. should embrace all of these things. There's going to be a little bit from column A and column B you know, for, for many women, for some women, it's going to be this, 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 yes, mm, no, not so much. And that's fine because there's no one size fits all mm. femininity. The idea is to do what you're doing mm. and to say, oh, well, if I thought about this differently, right. would I be different? Would right. it be different? So it's an interesting thing because it's, it's really, for me, really what you said really resonates because even though obviously I've described myself as a crier and I've always been pretty sensitive, um, I definitely think because of my work felt like I needed to toughen up and did. Mm -hmm. And then I, I started wondering if the reason I hadn't met Prince Charming was because I was bringing this tougher, more assertive person and not showing the sensitive, emotional being that I really am to my romantic relationships. And so 
that really was the impetus for this whole thing was, was this question of how, how much of myself am I bringing forward and, and why, you know, it's, it's definitely shifted the way I think about it on a daily basis. And throughout the process of writing the book, there were a number of moments where we hit walls. And so I would think to myself, what is the feminine approach here? How do I bring grace to the situation? So instead of being tough and strong and all this, my normal reaction, sort of impulse, fight or flight Mm -hmm. response, how do I bring a softer, more graceful Amy to this conversation or this email exchange or even how I'm feeling in here, because the truth is all of that is what matters. So it's really a practice, you know, first it's the awareness and, and paying close attention to it and starting to study it, but then truly putting it into practice on a daily basis and, and realizing that it there it's big things, big conversations, big moments, and it's little subtle moments and ways that you communicate in a simple email about nothing, you know? In hindsight, things become much clearer. How do you start implementing that on a daily basis? Like, what is the actual thing? Do you sit there, like, every time you write an email and say, am I being nice? Like, am I showing my true self? Like, what are those things that you actually do to start putting that into your life? Well, one of the things we were excited about is the tools that we included at the end of each chapter. So, for example, Mm. if there are specific qualities that you might identify as needing work. So let's just uh, say hypothetically, you want to work on your sensitivity. Mm -hmm. Then we give specific ideas, including spend more time in nature, like really activate your senses. You know, that's just a very specific and maybe obvious one, but, but things that, that allow you to really tap into these other parts of yourself. I was speaking with someone yesterday doing a podcast actually, and at the very beginning of the podcast, she uh, we did some intention setting. She's a yogi. So she we closed our eyes, and this was not being videoed. It was a audio, yeah. but closed our eyes. But we were on Skype, so I could see her. And then breathed together. And I was thinking, wow, this is really a sign of the times. You know, we're podcasting, we're <laughs> breathing, we're doing it all. But I realized just even the practice of just taking a moment, which we all know is valuable in all circumstances, went such a long way. So I think a lot of the practices that we include, the tools, are about that, that, that are, are opportunities to really create more awareness consistently, and it helps. That's what I love so much about the book. Like, it didn't just address issues. It said this, it gives a kind of breakdown on how you overcome them or how you use them to your advantage. And I'm such a fan of like tactical steps. Like, how do I actually do this? Because you can motivate me. Like, I could read the book and feel really empowered. Mm-hmm. But what am I going to be like the next day? Right, that that emotion has left me. So now how do I actually better my life? And your guys' book, like every chapter breaks it down on like, this is how you do it. And next one I want to talk to you guys about is the power of owning your sexuality. So talk to me a little about that. How did that come up? And then how, what, what are your thoughts on it? Well, you can't write a book about femininity without addressing feminine sexuality. And female sexuality is 
super fraught territory. It always has been. It goes all the way back to the Christian origin story, Judeo-Christian origin story of Adam and Eve, right? Mm -hmm. It's like we have been problematizing female sexuality from day one. So you have to tackle it. And you have to tackle it from the point of view of the contradictions in those particular stereotypes, Mm -hmm. right? Because there isn't just one stereotype around female sexuality. There are a few of them. There's the stereotype of the slut, right? Mm -hmm. Of the overly confident, sexually confident woman. Um, You know, there are, there's all sorts of folklore about succubi and, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, female demons that use their sexuality to like trap and destroy men, right? So there's all that, right? (laughs) And then there are the stereotypes of, you know, the virgin, right? Of the pure Mm -hmm. female, feminine, almost asexual stereotype that you have to unpack as well. How do we talk about our sexuality, think about our sexuality in a way that is personally and collectively empowering, Mm. knowing that we're living in an age of Me Too and Time's Up, and it's like, it's dangerous ground, like literally physically dangerous ground, but it's also absolutely crucial for us as women. We can't be whole human beings if we're not fully connected to ourselves as sexual beings, you know, in the way that arguably men have had much more permission Mm -hmm. to do. I think most women have baggage around it of like, how do you feel confident as a sexual being um, and feel good about it in a culture that tells you that there's just so much stuff wrong (laughs) with female sexual confidence. And it's kind of taboo, right? Women to talk about very openly about sex and how it makes Mm -hmm. them feel. Um, We still haven't even broken that ground where it's okay to talk about it. That's true. It's no, it's not. I mean, you see it in our popular culture, right? Mm-hmm. That it is, it is so loaded. It dominates our culture, arguably, right? But we can't talk about it because it is taboo, yeah. right? The sexually empowered woman is, I mean, you know, basic instinct, right? right. You know, she's a serial killer <laughs> um, or true. she gets raped mm-hmm. or like right. bad things happen to yeah. her. You know, it's like the horror genre is full of, you know, sexually active women right and left, you yeah. know, getting, getting slashed. And we've built up a culture of shame mm-hmm. around it, you know, and we do it to each other. Too. Yeah, you that's think about my female point. criticism of the Kardashians, for example, or, you know, pick your, you know, physically confident woman of the day. Mm-hmm. And we, we go after each other around it. That's such an important point. As we were doing interviews, Jennifer Gray was one of the people that we interviewed and she specifically talked mm-hmm. about the fact that the biggest issue is that women are labeling each other. Yeah. But then there's also just the practical day to day and how are we, how are we exuding our sexual power? And I was amazed by how many women are so conscious one way or the other of what they wear and their work environments. And these are women that work with more men. For most women that are working in a bigger, more corporate environment, it's a real day to day challenge. And one of the women interviewed in the book talks about how she rarely would wear anything other than pants and a blouse and a blazer because she doesn't want the fact that she's a woman to be a part of this, that she wants to go into every meeting essentially as an equal and that the way she dresses is a part of it. Another woman quoted in the book talks about quite the opposite, that she knows that actually the way she dresses and she's on television really does make an impact in terms of her effectiveness and she wants to be able to express that part of her and so it's really interesting 
I, I think another element that complicates it for women is that when we talk about sexuality with women and girls, we're usually talking pretty specifically about sex, mm -hmm. right? You know, whereas for men, the whole idea of sexual charisma doesn't necessarily correlate to how many people have you slept with. It's a, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's a power, right? So men have always had culturally permission to think about themselves as sexual beings in ways that don't necessarily, I mean, they, they obviously do, uh, you know, unfortunately in some problematic ways, but that lend themselves to looking at themselves as physical beings mm. whose sexuality is part of their physicality, right? And to be charismatic, you know, in that regard. Um, so one of the things that we try to do in the chapter on, um, on owning your sexuality on that it's sort of, we touch on it a bit too on seductiveness and, and those sorts of things that a starting place can be, think of yourself first as a sensual being, mm. right? Like it doesn't have to be about how you're using your parts, but who are you as a physical being that has parts, right? Mm. Who are you, you know, what brings you physical joy, right? Not necessarily through, you know, sexual intercourse, but through maybe it's like how you feel after a workout or after you dance, mm -hmm. you know, or in a bubble bath or the way red wine feels on your tongue. Thinking of yourself as a sensual being, mm -hmm. getting a sense of who you are as a physical creature who is female or feminine, right? And how does your identity as a physical being tie into that? Then we can start, I think I have fuller conversations mm -hmm. of what that means in terms of sexually confident beings and how we talk to each other and potentially support each other right. as sexually confident beings, how we talk to our daughters crucially mm -hmm. about sexual confidence and knowing what your likes and dislikes are and what you're going to give permission for and what you're not going to. But we have to start from a place of, um, as with all the things in the book, of kind of unpacking the problems mm. around it and asking ourselves to kind of drill down to what's the core element of this. Yeah. Um, and how much do you think that we worry about being judged by others, whether both m not just men, but also by women? It's like, if I dress sexier, and are they going to think of me in a different way? And um, what do you think about that? And how do we change that narrative? Well, I th it's so funny because the first thing that occurred to me when you said that is actually it's, it's even more for me, I'm judging myself, you know, oh. have you ever had that feeling where you put something on and you actually love it, but you think, oh, this is so different. This is so yes. not, so not me. Like there's a part of you that maybe wishes that it were, but that you you don't even know if you could pull it off because it doesn't feel aligned with this person that you've put out there already, you know? And I, I, so I, I think like in a way you could, I could wear that outfit mm -hmm. and it, yeah, sure. It would get a response from others, but it'd probably be a positive one because it would just be a new side of me, right. you know, but I'm the one holding myself back from That's that, interesting. you know? And I think, and I, so I think, yes, I think we're aware of the fact that men might respond a certain way. Women might respond a certain way. Um, but that ultimately we're the ones that are probably our biggest mm. critic and holding ourselves back the most. I've had a number of conversations with my daughter about this. You know, she's going to be 13 in about a week and mm -hmm. a half. So she's right in there. Um, in the context of what she introduced me to this term, crop top girls. Oh, what does that mean? Well, <laughs> she was using it as a phrase to describe a type of girl who is dressing for boys and specifically not 
because they want to, it makes them feel good. So it's like there's a difference between the kind of girl who just wears what she wants for herself, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the kind of girl who does it because she thinks boys are going to like mm-hmm. it. So, you know, in like women's studies nomenclature, dressing for the male gaze, right? Mm-hmm. And they're aware of it. You know, she's not even 13 yet. You know, she's in eighth grade. And they're thinking about this and making the distinction between are you doing this for you or are you doing this for a reaction? Now, I want to be careful about mm-hmm. suggesting that, you know, th- there's not necessarily anything wrong with dressing for a reaction or comporting yourself mm-hmm. for a reaction. You know, we want positive feedback, mm-hmm. right? But I feel, and I told her this, that she'd hit on something important about the starting with the what makes you feel good, mm-hmm. right? I personally don't feel sexiest in dresses. I feel sexiest in, you know, jeans and motorcycle boots, right? Um, And so for me, it's a question of what makes me feel good about myself. And what I wanted my daughter to really affirm for herself in these conversations we were having was what you've honed in on is the question of self-authenticity, right? What feels good for you? right? What makes you feel good about you? Um, and ultimately that's going to translate into healthy sexual relationships and romantic partnerships that if you know what makes you feel good, then you're going to be better able to have partnerships where you can communicate to somebody else what makes you feel good, you know, and you can engage as confident human beings. And part of her point was she didn't want to wear crop tops, right? They don't make her feel comfortable, Mm -hmm. right? So if she were to choose to do that just because it got the reaction, then that's where the problem comes in. And you're relying on your self-esteem to be dictated by how people respond to you. Giving away your power. Right. It seems that so many of us don't haven't spent the time even figuring out what does feel good, though, right. because perhaps we have been trying to conform to a certain thing or we've been making assumptions about certain things. So that's also part of the process. When I mm. first started the business, it was exclusively focused on women's sports and female athletes. And I remember very specifically a young woman, a female athlete that was posing for Playboy at the time. And I... And she had done other stuff in Maxim, and and so she was taking her clothes off probably more than other female athletes. And so I was pretty judgmental about it, to be honest with you, in the beginning. And I used to think, oh, like, why would they do that? What a mistake. And, it, and in the long run, they're getting pigeonholed as a specific kind of athlete that's going to only attract men for their looks and not, they're never going to really be able to, in a substantive way, build a larger audience. And... The thing that's funny is I, over time, realized that a couple of the young women that were specifically taking their clothes off a lot, they loved doing that. And so I realized Hmm. that, you know what, as much as I had my own opinions about it, and I didn't represent those women, but I really changed the way I felt. And I thought, you know what, I have a lot more respect for them. It was wrong of me to make this judgment about Hmm. it because I had my own preconceptions about it. And the truth is, this seems like this is who they are and they're doing it because they want to and enjoy it, not because they're feeling a pressure or because they haven't thought about the repercussions. So I guess the point is, we all have the opportunity to grow and shift and change our perspectives Mm -hmm. around this stuff. And that's what I was going to say, where I think that that makes the difference of having a distinction between what, like why are you doing it? Um, I actually want to talk to you. You did a video about being a mum and your sexuality. Um, I, I 
tell me about what made you do that in the first place. I found it so empowering and I don't even have children. But I was like, <laughs> I love that you're willing to talk about that. Going back to why we don't really talk about, like why we're not having open conversations about sexuality. Um, what drove you to do the video in the first place? And if you can explain what the video is about. You did your research. That I was did. a while back. <laughs> <laughs> So in those early days, you know, when opportunities emerged for taking on difficult subjects in a public space, in a public way, for me, the motivation was, I want to give permission for other women to talk about this, right? And you can only really give permission by doing it, right? So in the same way that we were starting to push the envelope on forcing conversations into the public sphere about breastfeeding and about postpartum depression and about how hard it is to be a mom, which led to all sorts of other broader stories about how hard it can be to be a woman in this society. Sexuality was a big piece of it, and especially for mothers who are simultaneously the most sexual beings if they're biological mothers because they had to have sex to mm -hmm. get to where right. they are, um, but also the most de-sexed beings. Yeah. Right. Because mo mothers are supposed to be pure. Right. Mothers are supposed to be asexual. Sex becomes really complicated when you become a mother. There's all sorts of stuff to talk about. So um, when I was invited to do that video, it's like, hell yes. You know, I was really uncomfortable doing it, frankly, because, you know, I'm as indoctrinated in all the taboos about what we talk about. But it just felt like it was a really important conversation to be unafraid to have mm. and to encourage other women to have. Yeah, that was so incredible because I think that, like you said, people perceive, and like I said, I don't have children, but from my side, it is absolutely perceived mothers as being like they're nurturers now, you know, it's almost one or the other. Are you a sexual being, being or are you a nurturer? I personally have um, had to go through a transition of, I went from being a housewife um, to building a billion dollar company with my husband. And I had to do a major transition for myself with, I'm my identity was I was a nurturer and now mm -hmm. I've gone into like, I have to be a boss. I have to be a leader. I have to be a business partner. And so there has to be this shift in me. Um, so I can't nurture anymore. And then I realized over years, it's like, that's so crazy. Why mm -hmm. on earth can mm -hmm. I not be both? Mm -hmm. Why can't I be strong, independent and entrepreneur and then super nurturing and mushy and, you know, all the sexual and all mm -hmm. these other things. Um, which leads me to the, the fact about storytelling. I know that you guys really love storytelling and I think it's a very powerful tool to empower women. Um, but obviously with things like Disney, you know, it's, they have one type of story like Cinderella where the person's coming to save you. So how do you guys think that we start to change that narrative of the female being the damsel in distress? Um, to the fact that they can be independent but still be mushy and want a prince charming well one thing i will say and and obviously catherine is the expert on all things princesses and fairy tales <laughs> um one of the reasons we were really excited to share stories from so many women in all walks of life you know all ages all different types of professions just amazing amazing powerful women each had something totally unique to express. Mm. That's what we need to see more of. You know, these mm. different different versions of femininity, different mm. versions of women thriving, different w versions of women facing challenges. And the more of that we have insight into, the more we can 
actually start to access those parts within ourselves. So I think that in terms of the broader opportunity for storytelling, um, sure, there's the big sort of public stuff that we're looking at in the movies and mm-hmm. how do you show, how do you see different versions of love and relationships and romance and parenthood and family and all these things. And we're seeing more and more of that, which I think is an incredible gift. Um, and then how do we bring some stories that may not be out for the public eye to the forefront so that those can be shared? And that's really always been my passion is helping build more positive female role models and elevate them, helping them build their platform and, and sharing their stories because I think that's how we all grow. Mm-hmm. And how important do you think it is for your own personal story, like the story you tell yourself about yourself? It's crucial. I'm, you know, as as we were discussing earlier, human beings are storytelling animals, mm-hmm. right? It's like we are unique among creatures in that we make meaning through stories. You know, it is the thing that literally makes us human. And so whether that is telling a public story or telling one's own story, there's a reason mm-hmm. why the word authority and author have the same root. Wow, that right? never dawned on authority, me. Authority, being author of one's own story is to literally and figuratively have authority over a narrative, right? The author wow. is the shaper of a narrative. Um, <laughs> it's very, very powerful. That's why it's powerful, because it's a kind of control. It's, it's the power to create worlds, to create ideas, to make meaning. It's powerful because in the telling of one's story, one gains more power. One is literally and figuratively becoming an author and gaining one's authority. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's everything for us. It's absolutely everything for us. Um, to your the, the first part of your question, we create more diverse stories for women and more gender authentic stories by making space for more female storytellers mm. in the public sphere. And that's why these public conversations are so important. Mm. Um, my next act will actually be that of making space for female storytellers um, because I don't think, to your point, that we're going to really be able to see much more authentic representations of the diversity of women's experiences and of femininity if we just don't have women in the space of storytelling, you know, and getting past the gates and able to tell their stories, share their stories, make up stories, represent the myriad ways it means to be a woman mm-hmm. in the public sphere so that we can really get the fullest and most complex picture of who we are as women, as girls, as female identifying beings. It's men have had, um, and there are all sorts of ways that masculinity imposes constraints, but they've had the full landscape of complexity in male characters to the extent that we just take it as an assumption that this demonstration of power, (laughs) this characterization of strength is masculine because it's the default. It's Mm -hmm. not even gendered. It's just we consider human behavior to be masculine behavior. We need the same for women, but we need to see, we need to see problematic female characters. We need to see, you know, good mothers and bad mothers, slutty women and virginal women. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we need to really see the full scope in fiction. And we need to have more women able to share what the personal experience of their lives is in order to um, break the mold a little bit, you know, on the Disney version of a princess story. Mm-hmm. And I, Amy knows this, has heard this probably too many times, <laughs> that I actually think that we, we, we also impose a lot of problematic assumptions even on the Disney versions of the stories mm. because of our complicated feelings around femininity. Mm. But you're quite right that there has been just sort of fairly set, consistent characterizations of women that have influenced how we understand 
um, the place of women in storytelling, and we, we need to break out of those molds. Yeah, I love that. There's one more that I have to touch on. I know we're like completely out of time. This is just purely selfish for my own sake. Um, <laughs> There's a chapter called Vulnerability, and then there's another chapter called Take Control. Mm -hmm. And I love that so much because to me, they seem completely contradictory. Mm -hmm. Being vulnerable, at least for my, before I read your guy's book, um, interpreting vulnerability meant weakness to me. It meant mm -hmm. opening yourself up to getting hurt, to um, somebody potentially taking a stab at you. So in order for me to control my life or my emotions, I cannot be vulnerable is what I used to think. Mm -hmm. So can you take me through um, those chapters and what your thoughts are? I think it's part of what we got so excited about is as we were starting to identify the chapters, and yes, there could have easily been more than 21, we realized that not only was there a long, long list of qualities that have been used in negative ways to describe women, <laughs> but also that there, we're getting these messages that are completely counter to one another. Mm -hmm. So as you, you know, for you, the idea of vulnerability and being controlling, how do those two things go hand in hand? All of these mm -hmm. things we say can coexist because, because the fact is we are complex beings. So, you know, why, why have we convinced ourselves that these things can't coexist? Mm -hmm. You know, why <laughs> I, I, just because I was controlling in one moment of the day and I'd say in a good way, and doesn't mean I can't an hour later be totally agreeable and easygoing and flexible and, and that that's a great thing because that was the right thing to do in that moment. We're vast and contain multitudes, right? We can be complex creatures. We often think of vulnerability um, to a point that you've raised a few times. We associate it with um, being in need, mm -hmm. right? Being weak, mm -hmm. being a damsel in distress, in need of rescue or saving. When in fact, vulnerability is just is an emotional state and acknowledgement of, of, of weaknesses. And weaknesses aren't necessarily bad things. They're just recognitions of gaps or of places where we do need support. And asking for support, asking for help you know, in our areas of vulnerability is a powerful point of human connection. Um, the poet Rainier Maria Rilke once said that some, we, we should look at the things that we consider to be dragons and ask whether they're not the parts of ourselves that are in need of saving by us, right? Mm -hmm. So when we look at our vulnerabilities and ask, where are these coming from? What are they? Being really, I think, ruthlessly honest with ourselves about what they are and not being afraid of them, being willing to look at the dragons and say, how am I going to self-rescue with these? Or where am I going to ask for help? Because it's fine to ask for help. Mm. It's fine to want somebody to come galloping in on a horse and say, I've got you right now. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that that's all you are. It means that you're human and you can't do it all yourself. And so you can be, to Amy's point, that vulnerable being who knows her vulnerabilities um, and who interrogates her vulnerabilities and looks for opportunities of strength in her vulnerabilities while also owning those moments where she is powerful, where she is controlling, where she can be controlling in a nurturing way. So you can be nurturing and controlling, and you can be vulnerable and strong. And those things not just can coexist, they need to coexist if we're going to be the wonderfully complex beings that we are. I love that so much. All right, guys, sadly, it's come to an end. Um, before I ask my last question, if you guys can tell us where we can find you online to find all the goodness. Absolutely. So social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Feminine Revolution Book. 
And our book website is femininerevolutionbook.com. And we'd love for everyone to order the book and dive in. And we'd love to hear from you because one of the things we're really excited about is the conversations that can be sparked just like this one from the conversation around femininity, which has not happened. So we want to hear when people agree with us and when they don't. And we want to hear all the feminine qualities that need to be explored as we move forward. Read the book and then tell us your feminine story. Share it. Share it with other women. You know, encourage other women and girls and men and boys, right, to mm-hmm. ask, you know, where femininity fits into their lives and what part does it play in their story. And I think that's so important, not just mm-hmm. focusing on this is a book for women. This mm-hmm. is a book for everybody. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 100%. Um, all right. And the last question is, what is your, what is your superpower? I, I love this question. Mine, I would say, given that, is emotional intelligence and sensitivity. You know, the ability to um, understand what somebody else's emotional experience is. And it's like being able to read people's minds a little bit when you have a, you know, a sort of a high emotional intelligence. Yeah. And so it can be debilitating because you're like, okay, I know that person doesn't like me. But it has really only been in my adulthood that I've been able to, and writing this book, wrap my head and heart around that emotional intelligence as not just another form of intelligence, but a very, very particularly powerful form of intelligence that allows me to navigate the world in some, you know, really um, effective ways, but then also allows me to be very, very emotionally self-aware and able to do what is sometimes hard, messy work, you know, around emotions, but be okay with it because I recognize it as a power. That's amazing. And what is your superpower? I'd say I have a very strong intuition. And sometimes mm-hmm. we talk a lot about intuition in the book. And, and we all have strong intuition. And I think one of the biggest challenges is most people aren't listening to their intuition. And or maybe it hasn't been valued in the same way that the, the hard facts that we can see on paper have been. But mm-hmm. as Catherine's saying, it's sometimes it's a little bit of a blessing and a curse. I can often see things before they happen. Um, good things, challenging things. And sometimes I know the answer to something long before anyone around me sees it, which is super irritating because you just want everyone to get there. But then because of the work I do, I have to really bring people along. Mm. So, um, but in the end, I'd rather know. So it's, it actually is a gift more than anything. And I think extremely useful and powerful in the day to day when, looking for a parking spot or (laughs) trying to figure out, you know, just important things like that, you know? So, (laughs) but, but in truth, also in the context of relationships and, and work, I always wanted to start a business, never had any desire to write a book, but about five years ago, it just occurred to me that this needed to be done. And I think that was intuition, you know? And if you look at how much the landscape has changed, it's just crazy really. So, um, Hopefully the intuition was right about this. I'm sure it was. It always is. It always is. I think it might be. I think it might be. Well, guys, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Guys, 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 the fact that this is called The Feminine Revolution is so spot on. They said they came up with a bunch of titles, but let me tell you, this is going to be a revolution. And the reason why I think that is they are really hammering home the things that we either is too taboo for us to talk about or we think it has to be one or the other. Being able to say you can be nurturing and extremely sexual 
why can't we? Like, I love that. Saying that we can be extremely vulnerable and still yet completely controlling. These are the things that I personally have had to try and overcome throughout my entire life and career. And it has been um, life-changing. And even this book, when I just when you think that you're there, you read something like this book and you're like, yeah, no, it still knocks down all stereotypes of certain things that I've believed. You are the authority of your own life. Take the control be the author, and create the story that resonates with you. Thank you guys for watching. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Until next time, go be the hero of your own life. What's up, guys? Lisa here. Thank you so much for listening. If you're not already subscribed, please do click that subscribe button. Click, click, click away so you don't miss any new episodes that come out every single Wednesday. And if you so inclined be great to get a rate and a review from you that'd be awesome that's how we get the show in front of more people and create more impact on more women so until then go out and be the superhero of your own life